Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. What do you do when your subject won't talk to you? That's the challenge for jobbing music biographer Jeff Apter, who's written a heap of rock biographies about subjects including Jeff Buckley, Casey Chambers, The Bee Gees, Silverchair, Keith Urban and now Neil Finn. Revisiting and expanding on his earlier biography of the Finn brothers, who took their talent from New Zealand to the world in split ends and crowded house. I wanted to talk to Jeff because he offers such a contrast to Mark Mordew, who I talked to about his Nick Cave biography in Series 1. Although both of the same vintage, they have different musical tastes and approaches. Mark was very slow. Jeff is very fast. One writes in a lyrical, literary vein. The other is a journo with a strong sense of what is commercially current. I began by asking Jeff how he got started in the biz. I was in my late 20s. And I was still, you know, I was getting involved with amateur writing, you know, like the the local writing group and all those kind of things and finding it a bit unsatisfying. And I read, just by chance, I read a record review in a magazine that I wouldn't typically typically read. It was Australian Hi-Fi, an audiophile magazine. And it was a review of an REM record. And I said, this guy doesn't have a clue. I mean, this is terrible. (laughs) So rather than just sit there and complain, I wrote a letter to the editor. And this is, it's probably, I guess, 1988, around then. I'm in my mid-20s. And I said, whoever wrote this review, there was no byline. I said, he's clueless. Here's what he's got wrong. And I listed all these things. And I was just an angry, you know, letter writer. He wrote back and he said, well, if you know so much, wise guy, why don't you write the column? Yay! You got your break! Yeah, I got my gig. And I did it for the next 12 years. It was a great, because it was a colour, glossy magazine. Most people start in the street press, you know, getting paid five cents a word. I was suddenly writing for a, a magazine that actually paid their writers. It was great. And the the coda to the story is that not so long ago, the, the guy died. His name was Chris Green. And in his eulogy, they included this story about him giving this smart-ass writer his first opportunity, because by that time, I, I guess I had a bit of a profile. And I was like, wow, I made it to his eulogy as well. So, you know, it was a as a kind of lifelong thing for both of us. It was, became a, a real running joke about, you know, he was the guy that hired the loud-mouthed critic, you know, and, and it turned out fabulously. But it, I did things back to front. I know when you're talking with Mark Mordew, who was talking about the street press, and I did, I sort of went from there to the same magazines as Mark on the street, drum media. There's a great period. And this is, it was a really good time because there was, you could sort of squeeze out a living just, you know, and as I think Mark might've explained to you, there was a lot of free stuff. So you could go and sell your CDs, you know, you got free concert tickets. So, you know, you didn't, (laughs) your overheads weren't high and, there's a funny period where there was a few of us and we were, <laughs> there was a fellow, a rival magazine, and they approached us and said, we need you to write for us as well. So we had to adopt pseudonyms to write for this other magazine. And we thought, well, we can't just come up with something boring. So we all just gave ourselves fish names. It was Oscar Pilchard. <laughs> I was Frank Haddock. And there was John, John Dory. And Oscar Pilchard is Barry Devola, who wrote oh, Driving no. Stevie for a Casa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're all, we all had the fish connection. In fact, Barry and I occasionally do segments on ABC and we still refer to ourselves by fish names. And it's like a, it's like a secret club. Yeah. Oh, that's very, very funny. Well, I mean, you are talking about halcyon days where, you know, the two things converged, as you say, a great period in music, but also a great period for journalism in terms of flourishing, lots oh, of was, places still that were outlets. Yeah. 
I just keep thinking, Jeff, of the guy who wrote Almost Famous. What's his name? Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe. Mm. Do you do you relate to the Cameron Crowe rock journalist story? Does that does that bisect with yours at all? There's one line in Almost Famous that resonates with me profoundly, and it's from Lester, the Lester Bangs character when he says to the Cameron Crowe character or the the character in the film, "They are not your friends. They will love you. They will treat you like gold, but they are not your friends." And and I don't mean that in a malicious way, but I've just come to accept over the years that it's a professional relationship that you have with musicians when you write about them, and. It's much better for both of you. Even though I've met a lot of people whose company I enjoy, I still have to. I, it took me a while to get my head around the fact that the reality was hey, we're having a great time. We're at mm. a bar somewhere. I could be, and I traveled a lot. I could be in LA, I could be in New York, I could be doing living the high life. But the reality was I had to write a story. And sometimes that story may not mesh necessarily with what that artist was hoping you write. Well, exactly. And that comes to neatly, that segues to biography. But I do think that that is a really important lesson. And it's a lesson that applies to all feature writers whose job it is to get close to their subject, whether it's a, a rock and roller or a writer, or as you say, a politician, it's a very important lesson. And it's a lesson that I think only comes with a certain amount of time and experience and maturity. Okay. So let's talk about how you pick your subjects when it comes to biographies, because I've been looking at your library of books and mm. you've written a prodigious amount, but I'm interested in prodigious. how you select word. them. Carolyn, you've got to understand, I always get, oh, he's so prolific and I hate prolific. Prolific smells like sausage factory to me. You know, prodigious is tremendous. I go with prodigious or productive. I got to a point with magazine writing. I was at Rolling Stone on staff. I, I lived in America freelancing for a few years, and it got to the early 2000s. And I, again, dumb luck, We what we used to do at Rolling Stone, because we had a, a fraction of the budget of the American magazine, but we're expected to put together an equally glowing product. And uh, once a month, too, it was a lot of work. And we would often run book extracts from re- relevant books, but, you know, because a publisher would give you a chunk of copy for free and images. It was great. It took up six pages of the magazine. They might even buy an ad. You know, it was all very nice. And we were doing a piece on, and this was one I supported, was Lillian Roxon. There was a biography of Lillian Roxon, the great Lillian Roxon, the mother of rock. And the publisher came in and we did a deal. We got some good text and images. It was all great. It was going to take up six pages of the magazine. And she said to me, she said, Jeff, you know, you've been writing for a while now. Where's your book? And of course, every jobbing journalist has a book in them somewhere. And I definitely had ambitions to write in a larger, you know, style. And I said, gosh, I don't know. She said, you come up with a subject and one that we think is marketable and we'll publish it for you. And it was, and I said, well, I just happened to have been working with the band Silverchair for a long time. They were making a pretty important record for them called Diorama. It was their mm-hmm. fourth record. It was quite a big game changer and sort of killed the band. So there's this big story. And I'd been traveling with them and spending a lot of time with them. And she said, there's your book. And she was absolutely right. And that was the first book I wrote. And then I left. Basically, I I struggled. I kind of kept magazine work going for a few more years. But really, by the 2005, 2006, it was dead. You know, I I have a great habit of killing magazines accidentally. I was the last music writer for the Bulletin. I was the the last music writer for Australian GQ. I was 
I was the music writer for Vogue under Kirsty Clements, and then she got fired because they got rid of everybody. So, you know, yeah, I, I thought someone's trying to tell me something here. Maybe I should stick with books. But by that time, I developed pretty good relationship with both international and local publishers. So I thought I was confident enough to keep going. But as far as selection of subjects, it's a mixture of things. I have to live with the subject for a year, you know, so that be and that would include not just listening to their music, but finding, you know, speaking to them, ideally, speaking to the people in their world, listening to every available interview, film clip, concert film. It's a lot of you really immerse yourself in their work. So I'm very reluctant. I've, I've tried this, I think, only once to write about a subject that didn't have at least a, a certain element of appeal to me as a music fan. Who was that? John Farnham. John Farnham. And, and oh God, there's a story. So I, I <laughs> but it was a, it was a worthwhile exercise anyway, just because I wanted to write a really commercial book. I thought most of my books do are a good investment for my publisher. Mm-hmm. My advances aren't high. I deliver a clean, almost ready-to-publish manuscript. I actually work on cover. I help with cover design, selection of cover photos. I help with ins- – I actually take the budget for inside picks and organize it all myself. You know, I'm a good – I think I'm a pretty solid person to work with for a publisher. But I wanted to – I just wanted to see what it was like to get beyond, you know, that 10,000 sales mark. <laughs> you know, I guess I had ambitions. I thought a Farnham book is going to sell really well. But – Unfortunately, I, mine was published maybe six months after another rival publication. So oh. the market was kind of squashed. And then I found out a very interesting lesson about Farnham fans. And this is going to sound a bit mean, but I'll say it anyway. They don't read. No. Can I just go back to the fact that you found out that there was another book on the same subject mm. that preempted yours? At yep. what stage did you become aware of that? Because surely as you were interviewing people, they must have said to you, we've already talked to this other bloke. Yeah, I was aware of it. but And I went back, and it's happened a couple of times. Typically, I'll just go back to the publisher and say, look, just so you know, there will be a rival title. Quite often, they'll pull it. But in this case, they just said, no, I think the market could handle two books. And it was it was an interest again. It was an interesting exercise because I'd got to know Glenn Wheatley quite well. May he rest in peace. Lovely guy, lovely guy, and I was much more interested in his relationship with Farnham than I was Farnham's with him, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you know, I learned quite a lot from it, and it was a really interesting exercise. But it just taught me that what seems to be a commercial entity may not necessarily connect. I just want to skim over a few others in terms of getting a sense of your choices. The Bee Gees, you called it tragedy, the sad ballad of the Gibb yeah. brothers. Yeah. So was the idea there that there, there was one particular kind of inciting incident, if you like, which you thought, right, there's enough here in terms of the fact that the brotherhood, if you like, fell apart, yeah. that gives you the kind of drama of the book? What's- oh, yeah. It was the picture of Barry at Robin's funeral. Hmm. You know, the saddest man on earth, it's a tra- that is a tragedy. I mean, obviously they had a song called Tragedy, so there was a nice hook there. But so, I remember seeing that image and going, there's a story there, and it's a very sad story. Hmm. Funny, bittersweet, funny, sad punchline to that whole exercise is the book was has been really, really well received, except by Barry himself. His only comment on the book was, I don't like the title. Jeff Buckley. Ah, that was – now that's really interesting because I, I've been – reluctantly dragged into what they call the Buckley business. And it's this never-ending cycle of live shows and, you know, new books. I mean, I think I've I've written the same book. I rewrote, in fact, I got the rights back to the original book and 
stripped about 50,000 words out of it and made it a much better book. Who gets the chance to do that? I know. Well, that's actually interesting. I've had it now with, I'm looking at my war, four books. I've had the chance to do that. How do you get to do that? I learned a lot about the business, I guess, over time. And I realized that if my books, say, for instance, I'm just looking at my war. I wrote a book on Mark Hunter back Uh in 2008, I think. And it didn't sell very well at the time. It got good publicity, great reviews. For some reason, it didn't connect with an audience. But over time, I just kept getting messages once, twice, three times a week. How do I get this Mark Hunter book? Can I buy this Mark Hunter book? And I'm going, are there no copies out there? And it seems that it was a small print run and everybody is hung on to their copy, which I take as a great compliment. And I went back to the publisher. I'm trying to remember. It was Hardy Grant. And I said, look, how many copies has this book sold? Do you have any stock left? And they said, none and none, basically. And I said, well, can I have the rights back? And this was quite recently. And they said, oh, okay. And they gave the rights back to me. And I did a deal with a local kind of niche publisher called Woods Lane. And I said, basically, I'll sell you the finished book. Let's do a new cover. And I can assure you there's an audience of people who will buy it. And, you know, we sold, I think, 500 copies within the first couple of weeks, which for a book that's had a previous life is great. So I've learned that there is a sort of second wind for some titles. I've recently completely rewritten the Bee Gees book because there's a lot more to talk about. Since I wrote it, Barry's actually gone, come out of retirement and pursued his own solo career, and I really wanted to write about that. And I just wanted to write, revise a few things as well. So but just go back to the process of, as you put it, stripping out 50,000 words, <laughs> which to me is two-thirds of a book, frankly. Sure. What are you doing then? You're updating. Fair enough. Of course you're updating. But are you going back over a old material to add new information that's become available to you? Oh, yeah. Uh, look, the, there was a key difference. The books that I, I wrote, one, two, three, I think four books for Omnibus Press in the UK. And these were in the wake of the Silver Chair book. Actually, they were the next four books I did. All on artists that I didn't really have a strong personal connection to, but... I thought, great opportunity, the money was good, I need the work, and it'd be a good challenge. Can I write a book about the Red Hot Chili Peppers? But their their policy was they would produce big hardcovers, so you had to write 140,000 words. So they're big books. I mean, they're doorstoppers. I've got a couple here. They're you know, 400 pages, 450 pages. They'll sell for, you know, they were probably selling them for what, 25 pounds, something like that. So, you know, it was it was as much a financial decision as it was you know a creative one so that was the that was the deal you had to write 140,000 words Australian publishers are quite different and thank god because I much prefer to write in a shorter format a shorter punchier format I think I mentioned to you in an email I was once told by an editor and it's one of the best bits of advice I've ever gotten Jeff if they can't read you someone can't read your book while sitting on the beach at Christmas having a break your book's too long yeah I thought that's really good given the type of work that I do you know mass market mainstream biographies and I thought, that's great advice. So I was work, reworking at least one, the Jeff Buckley book, the, the UK original, which was way too long, to the Australian format, which was ah, 80,000 words. Okay. But I also had a lot of new information. And I, like I say, I'd just been almost accidentally kind of drawn into this. this it's amazing. It's, it's a lot like Jimi Hendrix or any of these artists that are, you know, been they've been away longer than they were with us. Mm. And there seems to be, you know, developed cottage industries in their back catalogue or, you know, seriously, Carolyn, if they burped on a microphone in a studio somewhere, it's going to be released, right? And Jeff Buckley is a classic case of that. He's had something like, it could be more than a dozen 
posthumous releases and he only finished one album in his time you know so the, and there's an industry i was involved with the live show here martha wainwright was the headliner it was great it was really good i wrote the the show and worked closely with the musical director to pick the right people and pick the right songs and i realized it was a good experience it made me realize how much i like working by myself <laughs> <laughs> i'm not a team player i mean i am a team player but i don't work well in a group i okay. never have never will i like doing what I'm doing, you know, sitting yeah. at a desk as you, I am right you now. You found the right the right slot for yourself. Yeah. So one more to ask you about then before we talk about Neil Finn. Mm. We have to talk about Keith Urban just because sure. he's such a dreamboat. Mm. So what was the angle there? That wrote itself. In fact, I was just it's just about to be published in the US and I was just writing about this very thing. It was 1998. I was living in America. There's an annual event called Fanfare in Nashville and it's it's mad. It's like uh, the Hajj for country music fans. It's this most outrageous thing you've ever seen. It used to be staged at the Nashville Speedway. So the stage would be set up in the middle of the Speedway, seats all around, and out the back were all these old, like, produce sheds. And so, oh, it's, you'd be amazed. So uh, record companies use it as a promotional vehicle for whatever new records they've got. And, of course, it's in the middle of summer, so it's peak time for record releases in the States. And so an artist would get up, play 20-minute showcase, go out to the shed and sign autographs for hours on end. There's a story about Garth Brooks playing his 20-minute showcase and then sitting in the shed for 24 hours signing oh. autographs. So it's this mad scene and people are wheeled around the front of the stage to take their own pick of the artist as they perform. It's, it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. It really is. And I was there in 1998 because typically every year an Australian showcase happens. And I was backstage, and a friend of mine who's a manager of another act, he said to me, oh, there's Keith Urban. Keith's done it tough. And, of course, you know, ding, 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 all these radio, these bells start going off in my head. What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean he's done it tough? And he told me the story about how he'd, you know, I knew Keith from Australia, but mainly because he used to turn up on the midday show all the time. You know, he had this weird, I mean, he looked like a punk, and here he was playing to the, the Blue Rinse set, you know, it was all very strange. And I knew he'd had success at Tamworth and so on. Hmm. And he, I got the story about how he'd come to America about five years back, had this big record deal, it had all gone to hell, he'd fallen apart. In fact, when I met him, I was either just out of rehab or just about to go into rehab. But then, you know, so I was really interested. And I, when I came back to Australia soon after, I think I interviewed him for his first American solo record. And you could, I could just tell that it was about to explode. There was something about it. He just was the right guy at the right time. Good-looking guy, great musician, but a guy who'd learnt the ropes about what you have to do to fit in. Because remember, he's an Australian trying to sell country music back to the Americans. It's a ridiculous... If someone said it, said it you know, as a challenge, you'd say, well, no, I'm not going to do this. There's no point. And people had tried and failed before, most notably James Blundell, mm -hmm. who I know quite well. He told me the the dramas that he'd gone through, but he, he said something quite important. He said that Keith understood the machinations of the American music industry and was more than willing than I more willing than I was to compromise. And I thought, this is a great story. You know, mm -hmm. I think I've written about him twice. The early version of that book was called The Unlikely Rise of Keith Urban, because it is unlikely. It was completely ridiculous. You know, the idea of a guy whose dad used to run the tip at Kabucha becoming a, you know, a pinup, the, the equivalent of a Hollywood pinup in Nashville. And Nashville's such a big music market. The country music in America is huge. I mean, he plays to 50,000 people, you know, mm. nightly. It's a big, big market. And I don't think people here were fully aware of how successful he'd become. 
In fact, I think a lot of people here, sort of mainstream Australia, didn't know much about him until he was on The Voice. You know, it was really you know you got to be on the telly or you're not you don't exist at all. So that was really interesting. I thought that was a book that wrote itself. And again, another book that I wrote an early version of got the rights back when it had stopped selling. And interestingly, the and it wasn't an updated version. The second version I wrote was completely fresh and new, just using some of the source material from the original. Sold twice as many copies as the first one. So. The interesting thing about you, Jeff, is it strikes me that not only do you have a prodigious output, but you do have a business head on you, which I think most writers, many writers do not. You understand the industry, you understand how to repurpose work that you've already done and monetize that, to use a word I actually hate. But anyway, I mean, you do have a business head on you. And, you know, a lot of writers prefer not to think about that stuff or just are not very good at thinking about that. The the really big thing that I want to talk to you about today that really interests me, because the Neil Finn book, I think, illustrates this or is an example of this, is I'm interested in biographers who write biographies where they do not have access to the subject, where the subject sure. has either said to them, no, I don't want to help you with this and I won't participate and I won't mm. give you an interview, or where the access just is not available. Mm. So can you talk me through that? And can you talk me through that specifically in the case of Neil Finn? Yeah, sure. Yes, it presents, well, you know, it's a challenge, but it's also sort of a blessing in some ways because I found I haven't met a huge amount of musicians who were <laughs> eminently quotable. Oh, God, that sounds cruel. I haven't met a lot of musicians who I, I think have a voice that really resonates on the page, if that makes sense. Do you mean that you think that they don't have the quality of insight or reflection or analysis that you want from them? Uh, to a degree. I think that some of them are just better at writing lyrics, <laughs> frankly. You know, Neil Finn writes great lyrics. His interviews are interesting but guarded. And a lot of musicians are guarded. They're very cautious about how they're interpreted, their relationship with music press in particular and the media. There's a lot of wariness. You watch an interview with him, you'll see he's amiable, mm. but not overly giving. He's certainly not chatty, you know. So, okay, but that doesn't really answer your question. What do I do? I just dig deeper. For instance, I wanted to call this book The Musical Life of Neil Finn and concentrate almost exclusively on his music, because there is no real backstage story. He's a sensible middle-class boy from middle New Zealand whose father was an accountant who uh, had a dream of being in a band, accomplished that, married his sweetheart when he was in his early 20s, raised a couple of kids, never seemed, I don't think he ever strayed, and he managed, and now he's managed to find this wonderful way of combining family and music by bringing his boys into the band. You know, I'm not sure that's the juiciest story of all time. So I wanted to concentrate, and you'll see in the, you know, you've seen in the book how what I have done is by listening, particularly to, uh, to Neil in concert on stage, he'll reveal a lot more about a song on stage that he will in interviews. So you will find little snippets of, you know, oh, that line in a particular song, that's about when I was a kid back in Tiwamutu, you know, or that's an incident. There's a song called, a good example of this, is a song called Intertemptation. Yes. And whenever Neil was interviewed about that, he'd be a bit coy because people would say, ooh, 
that sounds like you've strayed, Neil. What's going on here? You know, is there is there trouble in paradise? And he was always a bit coy. And then, much more recently, I think it was a concert, a bit of concert footage, and he said, let me tell you the real story. He was staying in a hotel and, you know, he stayed in a million hotels, but he happened to be on the same floor as a team of visiting netballers and a team of visiting rugby players. And he said the entire evening he couldn't get to sleep because all he could hear was knocking on the door and scurrying up and down the hallway. And then <laughs> I think he said the next morning he was in the foyer and you saw a lot of very sheepish grins. on the, And he thought, what a subject for a song. Everybody misinterpreted it as a song about him being autobiographical. It wasn't at all. It was about an experience he had in a hotel watching, trying to imagine what the hell was going on in room 272 and room 274 while he was sandwiched between the two of them. I think it's hilarious, you know, to me. But I know that I've never heard or read an interview with him where he's revealed that. It's only on stage. So Okay, so let me just ask you, let's just go back a step here. Mm. Did you ask for his cooperation and mm. get a firm but polite no, or did you not even bother to ask? Oh, no, no, no. I I, I know he's, he's the closest connection for Neil business-wise is his archivist, a really lovely guy in New Zealand called Jeremy Ansell, who is a, a font of Neil information, knows everything from the first days of Split Ends to the most recent days of Crowded House. And he works quite closely with him. He maintains his website and so on. And I know him. And I said, hey, Jeremy, I want to update this book. And again, this is, well, it's not, I did write about Neil and Tim years yes. back. So I had some of that material already. And I said, look, I want to write a book about Neil. My publisher's keen to do it. What do you think my chances are? And he said, slim. You know, he's just joined Fleetwood Mac and he's about to get Crowded House back on the road. And he just doesn't like this kind of thing anyway. Right. And I'd had, I'd had a strange encounter with brother Tim. About 10 years ago, I was, Random House had approached me about doing the book that I wrote called Together Alone. And Tim was in Sydney and the publisher and I said, oh, great. I was invited to the showcase. I said, why don't we go and meet him, pitch the idea, see how he feels. Thought it was great. He was, he was lovely. He's like, oh, yeah, okay. Send me some of your books. I think that's a really good idea. I'd love to be involved. And then the line just went dead. I don't know what the hell. And I didn't, never got an explanation, you know, it was, but I just went ahead and wrote the book anyway. So I guess I've, I've learned, I've become a little bit, oh, not disenfranchised, but sort of accepting that, if I waited, and sometimes, you know, I've, I've, I've co-written books, I've ghost-written books, I've worked on official books, but sometimes I just figure if I wait, I could be, you know, I, I have no work. I'd be missing deadlines. How do you go about writing a book from clippings or from press cuttings? Do you, do you have a kind of system, which I know some writers of this kind of biography do, where you've got subject headings and you create this kind of grid where you're matching up the themes that you want to pursue with the quotes that you can extract from interviews that they've given in the past? And it's an incredibly elaborate sort of database. Sort of, sort of. I operate in a timeline. I'm very, my the best way I can work is chronologically. My mind works that way. So what I do is before starting a manuscript, I'll create it. And quite often my timeline will be 100 pages long, maybe even longer. And it will have cues to articles, cues to quotes, links to various other, you know, he said this on stage about that song that was written at that time. It'll be like probably unwieldy. If anybody else looked at it, they couldn't imagine what the hell it was. But to me, it's really, it makes my work very clear and easy and precise. So yeah, it's a variation on that. But I certainly, I prefer to work chronologically. I prefer to work using a time. I might not necessarily write chronologically. Quite often I'll think, oh, today I really want to write that bit about, you know, I don't know, 
when they played the opera house, you know, that looks like fun. I want to write that now because I want to watch the film at the concert, you know, but I'll, my structure and the, the guts of what I do is contained in that type of that document, which has yeah, pointers to all different articles. I used to be, and this is a, a hangover from working in the street press. Everybody there used to be very quote driven because we had tight turnarounds and you had to write two or three 1,000 word pieces in a few days. So you'd transcribe an interview and you'd use big chunks of that. And I used to, I, I made the mistake of continuing with that for a little while and it was probably necessary and I was writing 140,000 word books. But now I will only, I use a fraction of quotes. In fact, I tend to, to paraphrase much more. And mm -hmm. as my as I get more confident in my own writing and my own ability to assess what's going on and try to express something, I become much less reliant on clipping. Well, the clippings are useful, but the quotes not so much. You mentioned before how kind of normal, in a way, Neil Finn's life mm. is. And mm. it certainly strikes me reading the book that, you know, there's a very strong sense of place and a close-knit family. Sure. Uh, these are two very powerful anchors in his life. And it seems to me they're both part of why he stayed so sane in a pretty crazy business. So presumably you would agree with that, that, you know, place, the sense of belonging and that close-knit family from his parents down to his own children, those have been the sorts of sort of safety harnesses in a way yeah. on an otherwise crazy life. But how do you, apart from digging into the lyrics, as you illustrated before, how do you make that interesting for the reader? The elevator pitch as it is, as it was for Neil Finn, would be simply he's a regular guy living an irregular life and trying to find a way to adjust to that. And, you know, as we've seen in recent years, the way he's found to adjust to that is bring his boys into the band. You know, it's like the coolest, cool version of the Partridge family is the way I see it. You know? <laughs> but, you know, he's had this ongoing struggle, I think, given that he married early, he had kids when he was quite young. He wanted, I think he... The one part of the world in which he lived that he really didn't like was that distance, you know, being mm -hmm. torn away purely by career and ambition. You know, you spend a lot of time away from your family. So he found a way to combine the two, which I think is just genius, you know, frankly. And, you know, you've never seen him happier on stage because he's surrounded by his kids, you know. But, yeah, I mean, it is interesting given the type of books that I write and the world you know, the music biography, they're always supposed to be scandalous and full of sex, drugs and rock and roll stories. I thought it'd be kind of fun to write one that's about just normality, you know, with this and, and really shine a light on how great these songs are that have come out of this sort of regular life. That's I mean, right. Is, I mean, when I, you think of Neil Finn, you think, yeah, great brother, great dad, fantastic mm -hmm. lyrics, but you don't think of a life that has a lot of drama in it. One of the things that I didn't appreciate until I read your book was how key Australia is to the story of their success sure. because, of course, New Zealand was too small a market. And also mm. in Australia, they coincided with the rise of FM radio and also the global need to make videos that go with songs. But can you just talk for a moment about Australia in their success? Yeah, well, sure. in, in Neil's success, when I say there, I mean, obviously, Crowded House. Yeah, well, I mean, when he was in Split Ends, they were one of the first bands to, you know, what's the term? Cross the ditch. Yeah. You know, there was Drag and there was My Sex, there was uh, uh, Split Ends. And probably of all those bands, Split Ends had the biggest success. They based themselves, they were in Melbourne and then in Sydney. There's great stories actually about, I can't imagine this, a rock band living in an apartment in Rose Bay. I mean, 
You could imagine that nowadays, right? And they had this two-story place, and Tim was upstairs writing songs, and Neil was downstairs writing songs. They never actually wrote together, but they'd shout song titles to each other. And it'd be, you know, Neil going, I got you. What about that one, Tim? You know, and Tim would shout down and say, you know, oh, uh, a shark attack. What do you think about shark attack? You know, all these songs that ended up on True Colours. And I love this idea of we are almost writing together, but we're not quite writing together. And also, like I say, simply the idea of a rock band living in an apartment in Rose Bay. I mean, come on. <laughs> Who lives in an apartment in Rose Bay these days? It's um, too genteel. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, but yeah, so Australia was a good base for them. New Zealand, you know, there weren't the facility, there weren't the record companies, there weren't the studios and all those type of things. Split Ends worked with Mushroom early on. And I think for Neil and to a certain extent Tim, although Tim was more of a globetrotter, Melbourne, Melbourne in particular presented a really good base for Neil for a long time until such point as his parents started to get on and he said he'd had a couple, he had his kids by this point and he said, I want my kids to go to school without having to wear shoes, yes. which I thought was quite charming. To give, you know, I, I say talk about Neil being a regular guy, but he's quite funny. Someone asked him about growing up in Tiawamutu, and he said, Well, it's, you know, it was a great place to grow up, a small town, you know, big dreams. But he said, It is the kind of place that a man would travel a mile to see another man's collection of twigs. <laughs> that is a great and, line, actually. Yeah. And I, I, someone asked me, have you been there? And I said, no, I have driven past it because it's so small. I remember seeing the road sign and going, oh, there it is. Oh, great. Okay. I mean, there's not much there. You know, it's not. It, uh, so anyway, going back to your question about Australia, Australia, uh, the big part of Australia was Countdown. Yes. Count, Countdown, you know, which broke so many bands, but it was the first time there was a show that was nationwide that could expose a band like Split Ends at that time who were East Coast-based Suddenly someone in Perth or Darwin or, you know, in Tasmania, who's split ends? Oh, we should get them here, you know, and it really helped establish them as a touring band at, at this great period in the late 70s when I first saw them and into the 80s when bands could play seven nights a week and make a good living. Mm -hmm. You know, it was it was really a great era in Australian music that and, and it produced so much great music. You know, that's where Midnight Oil came from and the sports and, you know, Hunters and Collectors and Dozens and Renee Gayer and all these fantastic artists, John English, Marsha Hines, they all came out of that environment. They were a bit of a hard sell split ends. You know, they were kind of quirky and they were art school and yes. they were, you know, they wore you know, costumes designed by Noel Crombie from the band and they had the spiky hair. They sort of looked punkish, but not they weren't really punks. You know, it was it was this odd, they were oddballs. They were oddballs and it really comes across when you look at the videos because the videos are zany mm. and quirky, but they're this mixture of punk and wholesome. You know, their faces look so beaming and open. There's nothing threatening about them, no, no, but their dancing is kind of dorky yeah. art school dancing and it's just funny looking at the videos now I don't think that they date terribly well so how did they make the leap from say Countdown and Success in Australia to the much more difficult markets to crack in the UK and the UK. US? It was a very simple thing they opened for Roxy Music in Sydney and, ah. Phil, Ma and Phil Manzanera the guitarist in Roxy Music said I like this I think he saw them on TV before they'd actually supported him and said I want to do something with them. They're really interesting. And he said, come, if you get to London, I'll produce a record. Not only that, as I found out when writing the book, 
Phil Manzanera, who's to me is like this, I'm a bit of a prog rock fan. He's like mm. this godlike figure. He taught Neil how to play electric guitar because when Neil joined the band, he could only play acoustic guitar. So they said, shipped him off to Phil's house for a few lessons, So who by that time is a big star. So you can imagine what that's like. There's also great stories that I, I didn't know about until writing this book. Because they landed in London at the time, the sort of tail end of punk, um, they'd be playing the same venues and sometimes sharing bills with punk acts. And there were people like Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees. But she was a diehard Split Ends fan. But this, apparently she used to sit on the lip of the stage and just stare at Noel Crombie all the time, trying to work out what the hell was going on. And then they would overhear conversations. The band would overhear all these punks walking out going, are they punk? Do they, classify, you know, do they qualify as punk? Are they punk? And of course they didn't care as long as people were going to the shows. It didn't really matter. But they, yeah, so they were in this kind of grey area. They weren't really punk. I mean, they weren't railing against anything in particular because they were nice middle-class boys from New Zealand. You exactly. Know? Yeah, so they didn't have a lot to shout about, but artistically, aesthetically, they sort of fit in. At least they were, they, like you said, they were oddballs. How did they crack America? Well, they're also good songwriters. That helped. I mean, they had, you know, particularly Neil and Tim and earlier Phil Judd and Mike Chung, guys who helped found the band. I think as Neil's presence in the band became more important and he started to really establish it, because initially he was Sandwich Boy. That's how they referred to him. You know, he was the youngest in the band. And there's a, there's a line I recall in the book, relate in the book, where they're rehearsing somewhere and Neil has only just joined the band and they're London, it's 1977. And they said, right, lunch break. Who's going to get the sandwiches? And everybody, of course, looks at Neil because he's the youngest man in the band. But, you know, of course, Neil had big brother Tim to mm. want to emulate. You know, mm. he was such a fan of Split End, such an admirer of what his big brother had already achieved that he was starting to develop good songwriting chops himself quite early on. And when he was, I guess, established enough within the band to present those songs, they were quite different to what the band had been making quite long, epic, you know, art rock sort of pieces before, which are fantastic in their own right, but they were certainly weren't going to sell and it wasn't going to be a hit on Countdown or Top of the Pops, you know, but of course as soon as Neil wrote I Got You, their whole world changed completely. They were a very different band after that. They retained some of that sort of art school aesthetic and they always looked great and their videos were, look, they did, they've dated a bit, but they were always interesting. In fact, if you look at closely at I'm trying to remember the song, Magda Sabowski has a, a cameo in one of the videos. She, yeah, she's sitting there at a table just nursing a drink. You know, so they were working with interesting people too. I think as soon as those songs became more streamlined and they did True Colours, which was full of short, sharp, punchy pop songs, that's when the, the wider world started to pay attention to them. People knew them as a cult band. Yes. But suddenly, suddenly they were a pop band and they had this very – very, well, not, Neil was never handsome. Tim was handsome. Neil was the spunk. You know, he was a pin. He was. He was a pinup. You know, he was this great-looking twenty-year-old guy out the front of the band, with fairly substantial eyebrows, which he, I think he had some problems with in early videos. But apart from that, he looked great, and you know, he sang quite hand-on-heart songs too. 
there has to be in any good biography, in any juicy biography, in a family, there has to be conflict or in the story of relationships in someone's life, there has to be conflict. And I just wondered, you know, you tell that lovely story about Neil and Tim living together and shouting song titles to each other. But was there ever any kind of fracture? Basically, what happened was True Colours, huge hit, almost, not not exclusively, but, but pretty much driven by Neil's songs, particularly I Got You, you know, big international hit. Tim has the opportunity to make a solo record during some downtime because the band is working much more, you know, almost 12 months a year. They need a break. They take a break. Tim, as an indulgence, makes a solo record. It sells more than True Colours. So Andy falls in love with Greta Scarchi. Things change. So, um, and that's at the point when things start to fall apart. I think... I think even if that hadn't happened, Spit Ends would have fallen apart anyway because they had peaked. And mm. I think, you know, there's some pretty strong personalities, certainly Tim and Neil, but also a guy like Eddie Rayner, the keyboard player, you know, people with a lot of influence within the band who wanted their own say. And I think they'd probably gone, we've done as much as we possibly can. There was a few records after that, but none none of them as successful as True Colours. So Tim's success, solo success, and, and this new life that he'd started to lead was fortuitous in some ways because it hastened the end of the band. And, you know, the, again, I write about it in the book, the best bit of advice he ever gave Neil. They'd recruited Paul Hester into the band only a year before they broke up, and he said, go and do something with Paul. Work mm. with Paul. You guys would work wonderfully well together because they were similar in age. You know, they were much younger than the other guys in the band and probably maybe a little more ambitious even than some. And, you know, it turned out to be the best advice that Neil ever got in his life. So they sort of dodged that bullet, if you like, that potential conflict that would have happened if Tim hadn't had that success and that came time to draw stumps on the band. You know, they might have struggled for a few more records and probably become a bit more disenfranchised with the whole thing. They sort of did it well, I think. You know, they knew the band was dead and they there was a mercy killing. <laughs> and now, then, of course, subsequently, they found a great way to bring split ends back every 10 years or so, you know, and making, as I've found with so many acts who have reunited, so making so much more money the second time around, you know. Tim's solo career starts to flatline a little bit. Neil's is just on a supernova ride with Crowder House as an act of generosity and sort of they'd written some great songs together privately. He thought, bring Tim into the band. And of course, mm. it was the worst thing he ever did. The songs were great. You know, these are songs like Weather With You and Four Seasons in One Day and so on. But, and Chocolate Cake. But the idea of bringing in a natural born frontman like Tim into an established band like Crowded House and having him up the back playing the keyboards for half the set was never going to work. As soon as Tim leaves the band, their latest single, which he co-wrote with Neil, is a top 10 hit in, in the UK. There's a um, an image I always have in my head of Tim back in Melbourne, the band's still on tour, and he gets a fax. This is back in the days of the fax saying, I think it was Weather With You's just gone top 10 in the UK. Oh. So this mixture of absolute elation, I've written a song that's a huge hit, and the simple fact that he's no longer in the band. So, you know, I think over the years subsequent to that, they've learned how to, they've made records together as the Finn mm. brothers, but a little bit more eccentric, less demand for commercial success. And I think those are the projects, the projects that suited them perfectly. Another component for biography is a shadow of some kind in a story. And in this case, it's very much the death of Paul Hester, isn't it? 
Absolutely, absolutely. For the uninformed, you know, Paul left the band in the middle of an American tour in 1994, I think it was. Having been the clown of the band. Yeah. Oh, and look, on stage, the, the, the focal point of the band, the funny guy, you mm. know, the ringer of the band, you know, really. <laughs> but he was about to become a father. He had those pressures that Neil had, had lived through already. And I think also he just found the road more of a drain than anybody else. And, you know, I've, I've been on the road with bands. It's exhausting. It doesn't look so. You're only, on, you're only working one hour a day. But just that grind, you know, the miles you have to do, the endless interviews, you know, it's just it's, a, it's like living inside a cocoon almost. It's a weird experience. Some people love it and thrive on it. I think it's a really alienating and kind of unnatural experience. It really is. I find it really odd. And I can't imagine what it would be like to do that for 12 months. Maybe he nurtured, actually, I think he just wanted to sit and watch the telly for a while. You know, I really do. I really think he just wanted to put his feet up for, for a prolonged period of time and not be Hester the Jester anymore. Mm-hmm. He had conflict with Neil occasionally because they were quite different. I think Neil got tired of the band being seen as sort of the three amigos of pop, whereas, whereas Paul was a naturally funny guy. So he wanted to continue that and cause some conflict. Neil wanted to be taken seriously. And I guess Crowded House in the wake of Paul Hester did become a more serious band. I think their music became a bit darker. And Mm. certainly after he died, the Together Alone record, uh, sorry, Time on Earth record, which came out subsequently, that's a very dark record. Do you think that that means, Jeff, that Neil felt in any way guilty that he didn't read the signs and recognise how troubled Paul was? I mean, we should say, you know, Paul committed suicide. Mm, mm-hmm. I think he, yeah, he bore a bit of that, yeah. But, you know, Paul had a huge, from my understanding, a huge range of of close friends, musical acquaintances, people who knew him really well. So Neil wasn't operating in isolation there. I think there was a lot of people who just didn't know how how deep he descended into, you know, the psychological problems that he had. People just saw him as this funny guy who mm. at that point was, I think, running the Elwood Beach Cafe and playing in a band in Melbourne pubs, you know, and, and doing some TV work. They just thought that's Paul Hester. But obviously there were some darker play, things at play. Mm. Yeah, Neil bore a bit of it, I think, in part just because he was they're incredibly close. I mean, you know, a band on the road for all its all the weirdness that I've just described, no one really understands what that's like. You know, the Beatles have always said no one knew what it was like to be a Beatle except for us. You know, you could have, you could travel with us, you could be with us 24 hours a day, you still don't understand. Absolutely not. How could you? Yeah, yeah. And Neil's, you know, Paul's biggest success was with Neil. So, um, yeah, he bore, I think he found a way to remind people and to commemorate Paul really quite poignantly. And, you know, songs written about him, always acknowledging his role in the band. You know, even now, what's that? How long's it been? 20 years, you know, Hmm. long way down the line, almost 20 years since he died. He'll play every Crowder House show. There'll be a nod to Paul Hester. Jeff, we talked before about Mark Mordew, and you obviously are contemporaries. Now, when Mark was on the show right at the beginning, he doesn't have much time for music biographies no, generally. No, no. He thinks that they're pretty terrible, disposable, and generally too hagiographic. So mm. I'm just wondering whether you have a favourite rock or pop biography that is a kind of benchmark book that you aspire to or that you think is doing something different. Oh, yeah, yeah. The book that got me started, it's a book called No One Here Gets Out Alive 
written by Jerry Hopkins, and it's about the Doors. And I read it when I was when it was first came out. I think it came out in 1980, thereabouts. So I was in my late teens, and it was the first time I'd read a book about musicians that was a proper biography, that felt like a real book, that I thought I was a middling Doors fan. I didn't know their work inside out, but I didn't need to because the story was good. And, you know, that's sort of what I'm striving for with my work. I want, I'm want. i really impressed when people come to me and say, hey, I wasn't a big fan of John English or the Bee Gees or somewhere. I read your book and it was great. I really enjoyed it. And then I went and revisited their work a bit more. You know, so that's really what I'm striving for. But I remember that book being really pivotal for me. That still is because it showed me that, you know, I, I understand where Mark's coming from, definitely. There are a lot of books that are just, you know, basically, you know, puff jobs. And, you know, there's a million reasons why those books are written. Come on. You know, <laughs> you know, I think, I guess I, with my sort of business understanding, I get it. And if someone came to me with a fabulous offer, I'd probably consider it very seriously myself because, you know, you've got to make a living. But that was a book that really opened my eyes and made me think that's what I strive for. If I could write a book like that, that is both musical, it's about a band, yeah, that's exciting, about a rock and roll band, a dangerous rock and roll band, but it's also a gripping yarn, a really ripping yarn. And, you know, if I get close to that with any of my books, I feel like I've really done what I set out to do. The US publishers of Jeff Apter's urban biography are keen to discuss other projects with him, which may mean that his career is about to go international. Jeff Apter has found a way to make these fast turnaround rock biographies work for him. They're short on cultural context. You don't get a sense of what is happening in the rest of New Zealand's art scene at the time the Finns emerge. But he understands what his market wants, which is a sense of the roller coaster ride that characterises life in a successful band. It's anecdotal, gossipy, and reliant on information in the public domain. But that has its place. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and edited by Kira Jordan for Pipewolf Media. This episode was supported by a grant from Create New South Wales, and I'd like to thank them for their generosity. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to their elders and storytellers. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. <laughs>